Hello all and welcome to another episode of our Comics Pals interview series. Uh, before we get into the show, I do just want to let everyone know where you can find us. Uh, as always, we are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, wherever we have any podcasting. We're more than likely there. If not, come yell at me. Uh, we're also on all the social medias, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever it's sold, we're there. Uh, you can reach us on our email address, thecomicspals at gmail.com. Um, and also come visit our YouTube channel. We have a lot of new content, a lot of good stuff. Uh, recently came out with Fill Me In. Um, from our time back at New York City Comic Con. Lots of good stuff, lots of good interviews. And speaking of interviews, today I am joined with Henry Barajas. A quick background on him. He is the writer on a short story in the Where We Live Image Comics Benefit. He's also the writer and creator of La Voz de Mayo, Tata Rambo, which is a book that we'll be talking about in just a little bit. He also has an upcoming docu story in uh, Hass's comic, the Panel by Panel, um, where he touches upon his writing of La Voz, the actual book that we'll be talking about in a sec. And he's the operations director at Top Cow. Henry, how are you? Hello. Hey, man. I'm good. It's uh, last week. The book finally dropped um, wherever good comic book stores bought the book. So been a nice, uh, nice overwhelming couple of days yeah have you have you got any early rumblings anything any uh good news there i know i've seen a lot of interviews a lot of stuff coming up to this and uh, a lot of great press so uh, how have you been feeling about it um i've been great and i am very i'm very humbled and honored by the reception um we got one 10 out of 10 review from but why though that was really flattering I never thought that would be possible to get a 10 out of 10. A lot of people I respect and hire in the comic book industry have been so gracious to let their legions of fans know about our book. And seeing our the cover alongside uh, Robert Kirkman's uh, book and Brian Azzarello and Jeff Lemire and on the Image Facebook page was a bit surreal. <laughs> Family Tree, Oblivion Song... Uh, moonlight uh, or moonshine, and then La Voz de Mayo. Just something like that I would never, ever in a million years think was possible. So, yeah, no, I'm really happy with what uh, Jay Gonzo, Bernardo Brees, and Claire Napier and I have been able to wrangle together to share with the world. Absolutely, uh, and and that must be a great feeling. And and uh, I, b- before we delve too far in, I, I do want to just know. Um, what is your sort of comic book origin story, I guess? How, how did you get familiarized with the medium, and how did you first fall in love with it? When I was a child, there was I had a Ninja Turtles birthday party, and, you know, that is one of the most, like, quintessential indie comic book stories of all time. You know, Kevin Eastman and the Ninja Turtles coming from that black and white, you know, comic to movie stardom and now oh, there was pictures of me as a child wearing superman shirts from the christopher reeves 70s movie and growing up we watched justice friends and we watched the batman uh tim burton batman movies and the donner richard donner superman movies and just my parents loving that stuff and when i was a kid my mom and dad used to uh bargain hunt and and he used to sell it at the uh, the local swap meet, and they would come home with boxes of comic books they would get for nothing because 
Tucson, Arizona, where I'm from, is a college town. So when kids would leave the home, parents wouldn't know what to do with their comics. They would just sell them at yard sales. And uh, I would get like an eclectic collection of of Madman and Batman and X-Men and Wonder Woman and Justice League and Superman comics. And already being familiar with the comics with because of the films, I just fell in love with with the fact that they continued outside of the movie and I got to keep up with these characters and grow up with them and and not only did I get comic books but I also got wizard magazines and comic book fire guides and comic book journal and a lot of different um, magazines about comics and I always grew up reading them and, and learning about books that I never thought I'd ever be able to read just because I was I lived in a poor part of Tucson where there were no comic book stores and we were lucky if we got copies of Spider-Man or Batman at our local gas station back when comic books were sold at gas stations. And so um, I always just grew up reading about the creators and the Eisners and, and, re and just living vicariously through these like big ad machines that were Wizard Comics. And then I got into making my own comics i made my first comic called level uh excuse me el loco was about a mexican superhero that was a migrant farm worker that fought the chupacabra and racial profiling and every time he tried to fight crime he would get bust by ice and um that got the attention um from the local news stations because by and large it was a response to the sb 1070 law that governor jan brewer was was um that had, she had proposed and signed, and uh, it was just a response to that. And I started making more indie comics, like Captain Unicorn, and that was about a mystical man horse superhero that killed uh, bigots. And he was this like openly gay Facebook, like Mark Zuckerberg character. He was like a combination of what if like Freddie Mercury and and Anderson Cooper like came together and made it. A superhero man baby and we we couldn't get it off the ground or no publisher would touch it so i started writing about comics for comicsweet.com with heidi mcdonald she gave me my first big break and because of that i was able to introduce myself to a lot of comic book creators and industry industry professionals and lay the groundwork for something bigger so when the time came i could I could tell a bigger story and, and, and tell it with a, a major publisher. So I, uh, I finally got a job at Top Cow Productions. Thankfully, Matt Hawkins was uh, nice enough to, let, to give me a foot in the door. And, and eventually, we're here. And I'm making graphic novels like Levelos and Mayo. That's awesome. Uh, Matt, Matt is a, a great person. I've met him once or twice. And uh, he's always very, very nice to me. <laughs> um, so you mentioned uh, meeting a lot of industry professionals uh, in one of your I think it was a Paste magazine interview you actually mentioned that you had met the artist Jason uh, Gonzo Gonzalez a couple years actually prior um, how did you sort of meet with the, the rest of the creators and I know we, we met with uh, initially via, via Claire but how did you sort of wrangle the rest of the team and, and can you tell me about the development for that for the Lavos? sure uh, so I met Gonzo at Phoenix Comic Con, he was um, publishing, self-publishing La Mano Destino, very uh, just amazing comic about luchadors in the world of 
and luchadors seen through the eyes of someone who really respects the respects the sport and the the kayfabe of it and uh, it was he was really hard to ignore everyone kept singing his praises and i had to go to his booth and he had like green and pink like colors and he had wooden like displays that propped up all the comics and he was like just doodling and he had like a hot wife and he was just this like kind of rock star you know just this really like he had a really cool vibe and look to him so i eventually we we became acquainted and we we always flirted with the idea of working together and matt hawkins was uh keen to what i was doing about my great-grandfather and lavos and and he, uh, he had said that I will help you make this comic if you get Gonzo to draw it, not knowing that we were already friends. Oh, really? Yeah. So it was just serendipitous that it kind oh, of wow. came together like that. Yeah, I called him in the matter of like a day. We had a we had an image book locked in and something kind of like kind of un. There's no way to break into the comic book industry. There's like no one way. I like to think of it as that scene in the Matrix where you're in a room full of doors and you're with the keymaster and you're just trying every damn key to open every door and then and then all of a sudden one of the agent smiths tries to kill you and you just pop in that way you know there's just it's always gonna be it's never there's never one singular path like any any industry you know you go to college you get a degree and you get a bunch of interviews and you get a, and then you get a job it's 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 never kind of like that so uh i worked on like you had mentioned before where we live the anthology that benefited the mass shooting survivors from the Route 91 Las Vegas tragedy. Um, I was one of the few people that lettered my own stories because I, I letter com my own comics mostly. And uh, Bernardo Brace lettered the, a, a majority of that book. And I wanted to work with him because I knew he was fast and he could deal with multiple uh, lettering an anthology of over 150 different creators just sounds like a nightmare you know like i can imagine yeah that to me can prove that to me proves that bernardo was able to, to juggle something probably not as difficult but if you ask him he probably would argue i'm difficult and and the whole project was a mess but i'm i'm kidding but i i, I wanted to work with somebody who could who could deal with something like this so uh i had got him hired on and, and when i was working on chapter on the first script i had I spoke with Claire Napier and, and she was, we were talking about what we wanted to do in the comic book industry. And she, she said that she wanted it to edit more comics. And, and I really respected her, her point of view and her criticism, uh, uh, women who write about comics.com. And, um, I sent her the script saying, Hey, no pressure, but let me know what you think of this. And if, is this something that you'd be interested in working on? Because I wanted because Gonzo and I are Mexican American, we have Native American backgrounds, and and we love this. We this this project was very personal to us, on a on a very personal level. And I wanted somebody who was in, based in the UK, who had no idea what we were talking about, and was able to be um, non-biased. And she up, uh, you know, she had said she really liked what we were doing, and she wanted to be a part of it. Of the project so it was um you know just just a, a big it was a big team effort and i'm very glad that i had a really solid crew to help me tell my great-grandfather's story 
in the story of a lot of lost voices that were that were Mexican American, Mexican migrants, and Native Americans that kept their their homes and their integrity as a as a tribe. I mean, that, that's a that was a great idea on, on your part to sort of send that that off to to someone who isn't based in in the U.S. who doesn't have you know the same sort of context um, to have sort of more of that transparency, I guess, uh, as well as that that maybe objectiveness that, that you really need for from an editor i think you know they, they they provide a really great service so that was kudos to you yeah i wanted also someone who needed i needed to explain everything to you know mm, but yeah she i needed i needed to explain this topic on a very uh it, there was a lot of minutia behind it and and if she didn't get it then that meant i needed to do more storytelling revisions you know so yeah, there was a lot of different reasons to get Claire involved, but she um, was. I'm glad that she had said yes, and we had finally met in, in real life uh, two weeks ago at Thought Bubble, and it was. Oh it was, really? Uh, yeah, it was awesome. Yeah, it was cool to to meet her and Steve Morris and and Todd and and Matt at Newsarama. It was really cool. Uh, it was a really cool weekend. We to be in a. I, I've known all, a lot of those guys and girls. And, you know, everybody, and I mean, everybody that I'd met, a lot of people I've known for like eight years, mm. you know, it was just nice to finally to get, in, you know, get in the same room for the first time. Absolutely. I love that about comics. It's just the, the collaborative nature of it just makes for, for building these relationships, you know? Yeah. Um, but, but jumping into the book, I, I did want to say, I, I love the way that you, that you started, um, so after I finish it and everybody, you know, taking notes and, and one of the things that I realized is that that very first scene after you, you run through the book, that scene is so much more poignant because it surrounds itself around another civil rights issue, another issue in terms of uh, immigration status, stuff that is very hot button and topical right now. Um, can you tell me in, in your words why it was important for the book to start with Rosa Robles? There's a lot of there's a lot of, like it's this is a it, <laughs> I hate to bring Shrek into this but it's it has a lot of layers you know mm-hmm. like an onion yeah yeah you know the the further you peel the more you know like just from a surface point of view it was it was Ramon's last protest that he attended before he passed away uh, it was to celebrate Cesar Chavez and that that weekend was used to. Um, Signal boost Rosa's uh, situation. She was in a in a in the Pres- Southside Presbyterian Church. That was a very that was a very liberal and very um, politically driven group of people that also worshipped God, which is such an interesting dichotomy. Um, and they were fighting to keep her in the states. She was uh, she seeked asylum in this church and avoided deportation and was able to make a meeting. And um, when we were writing this, or when we were tweaking it at the end for the trade paper rack, they were trying to revise it, like trying to trying to make me kind of revise the language in a way that would that would date it. And I didn't want to because I knew, no matter when a reader picks that book up, it's going to be this. We're going to be in the same situation. Sure. You know, and it was important for me to kind of show that Tucson is historically a place that fights for the injustice of people that don't have a voice. And the, the basis of, of the book of La Voz de Mayo was that Ramon 
and the community fought for the voiceless. And it showed the modern day, uh, you know, police brutality that happens with protesters. That was uh, that, that panel of them spray painting, spray us, pepper spraying people is, is an actual event that took place. And oh, wow. it was important. Yeah, it was important for me to highlight what's happening and how timeless this is going to be. And um, it also, from a storytelling aspect, we go from we go from the oppressed with the Lavos de Mayo group and the, the protesters from the Pasquayaki tribe to celebrating at the end. So it was important to show that there's always going to be a resistance, and Ramon was always a part of that resistance until the very end. And with that context, I mean, even even more powerful, you know. Um, can, can you? Um, so your your great grandfather Ramon, uh, and please correct me. It's Harigue. 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 Okay. It's, it's Haurige. not an easy name to pronounce. You're always no no. Explain it. So don't don't feel bad. <laughs> um, can you? Uh, I I don't I don't remember it being in the book, but can you can you tell me how how long you worked on it? Um, and how, how long you worked on it with, with your good grandfather? Uh, I would say, uh, for a better part of 2015. Oh, wow. I was, uh, yeah, just driving, around, driving him around Tucson, showing him some landmarks that he might recognize. He showed me where his father used to work at this market that was still open. And my, my great, great, my great, great grandfather used to manage this liquor store and this ice this like ice house market or something like that and he used to work there before he died from complications of mustard gas and i took my great-grandfather to his his elementary school and his first home in downtown tucson next to the place i used to dj at kxci that's in the book and uh we had driven around to the old the son of here and we went to, you know, we, we I took him out to dinner and, and breakfast, lunch, and dinner many times. And he also was uh, kind enough to part his documents with me, like the La Voz de Mayo newsletters that's mm. in the trade paperback. Uh, that's all of the, the Mayo newsletters reprinted for the first time in 50 years. Wow. And... Uh, yeah, so uh, for and I, I've mentioned this before, but uh, 2015's right when Trump started to really rally and campaign. Mm-hmm. So working on this was a good way for me to kind of distance myself from what was happening and bracing myself for for the inevitable and giving me something to look forward to. While there was, well, a lot of people in my camp felt like all hope was lost. I could. I was able to see a light at the end of the tunnel with it being the graphic novel hitting print. Yeah, and uh, I mean, in in light of all that, what is, well, I, I guess comics sort of journalism and and biographies like this, it's it's difficult to sort of capture um, what is current, and, and you, you've you've built a really great way to uh, to capture those moments. Obviously, this 2015 moment, but also. 
the fact that, you know, to your point, this came up while while Trump was on his rise, you know, um, the first couple years of of his presidency. And how do you how do you tie the, I guess, immediacy of telling a story like this um, and being able to translate it to to be concurrent? Because that's always like a hard thing to match up the timing. I mean, unfortunately, the timing of whatever art you make that deals with the oppression of natives and Mexican Americans is always going to be perfect because it's constant. Mm. You know, today that Jay Z Z they they did a story on Lobos de Mayo. They recently re- released a, a story about how there's a community in a Navajo community of an Indian reservation that has to drive eight miles to get clean water. They have to pay so much money for one of those like cooler jugs and the prices are keep keep going up because the man keeps going up and water is so scarce and you know no matter what what point no matter what you're doing or when when you do it and when it comes out it will always line up with the oppression and the and the constant eroding of any kind of help and support that native americans desperately need the Dakota Access Pipeline has just been leaking oil. There's been so many accidents. There was a huge stance for that. And once there was a win, everyone kind of disappeared. You know, everyone felt good about themselves and kind of let that go. It just, it's just it's always going to be poignant, no matter no matter what day it is. If you look hard enough, you're always going to see something that is in line with what you're doing. I mean, I worked as a journalist at the Arizona Daily Star, and we used to get... Um, press information from the border patrol and they they'd always include photos of mexican migrants dead on the floor bloated and sunburnt and i mean these were pictures we couldn't run mm. you would see people dead and i wanted this book to be a win for mexican migrants and mexican americans and native americans that once upon a time there was a there was there was a congress that cared about brown people enough to to make them recognized uh i mean you i feel like you put it succinctly this is for the the people of old pasqua i, I hope they embrace this and share it with their people you know it's uh it, it's a very important thing to be able to to revise or not necessarily revise but i guess clarify history for people because it is very i call it an, amend- an amendment this is an amendment yes an amendment to the history books it's not i'm not rewriting history i'm not trying to dismiss what they have done i'm just trying to uh just amend and also include people of their own tribe Mm -hmm. with that how does how does writing a story like this differ from a story let's say that you would have um you mentioned el uh el el, el loco right the uh the the wrestler so like like how does that sort of differ in terms of you writing it down the form how how, how do you express yourself differently well i mean love with el loco there's pieces of me that that made it to the page there was it wasn't me at all you know Mm. it was it was a it was a a character that i based off of peter parker and spider-man but also with some of my personal traits, but not me entirely. With Love Osamayo, I, I am in the book. My family's history is in the book. 
their the dirty laundry is is on display, you know, and and trying not to portray this perfect angel. I I try to show Ramon with warts and all, you know, he he was this amazing leader that helped people, but also he was uh, not faithful to his wife and his family, mm. and that was hard to share that, but. I thought it was important to the story. Yeah, was was that um actually how was that sort of broached with your great grandfather? I'm not sure if if that was something you guys had discussed, but uh, I was just curious to see how you sort of uh, approached it. I didn't talk to him about the book. I just told him I was writing a book about him. I okay. I didn't want him to read it and not like what I was doing and affect my story. You know, mm-hmm. I'm thankful that. Image Comics was the publisher that I worked with because there was zero editorial oversight. Everything that's on the page is by me and Gonzo. There was no one telling us what not to draw, what not to say. Um, And it was very important for me to own my family's history. Um, So I'm very lucky that I had nothing to influence me by. There was members of my family that asked not to be included, and I included them anyway because, it was, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I just I, they 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 had claimed they had cared about my great grandfather, but he lived in a broken trailer. He didn't have he didn't have hot water. His stove, I don't think, was working properly. So if they really cared, I think they would have been there for him. You know, mm. that that's not to say everybody in my family was like they. There was a lot of members of my family that looked after him, took him to doctor appointments and were there for him. But, you know, my great-grandfather, at the end of the day, was accountable for himself. You know, there was right. there's not a lot we could do for someone who's that stubborn. And, yeah, so I was lucky that I got to say and tell the story I wanted to tell. Um, and I'm, I haven't met any opposition or seen any cease and desist letters or... Or haven't heard from the, the tribe itself because, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm just waiting for that kind of phone call from somebody. <laughs> sure. There was uh, th- there was one scene that I had wanted to ask you about. Uh, it's on page 60, and it it, it, uh, it really struck me. Um, it's where you two are uh, talking, uh, and you're just, you're just sitting on a truck, like on the truck bed, and he seems to sort of shrink and regress back into a child as, um, as he's mentioning, you know, um, I'm, I'm not getting any younger. I'm, I'm, my memory's not what it used to be. Did, did he at all suffer with any sort of dementia or cognitive, uh, thing in his later years? At the end of his life, he did. Yeah, there was, uh, and when he was on the deathbed, he was starting to forget, mm. um, at times. So the idea behind that was to, to use the, the visual narrative, right? to take us to the next scene, which was showing him as a child losing his mother to uh, ammonia, I think it was, or, no, she had a stroke. Uh, she had a stroke and she had passed away and then and then his father died due to, died to the mustard gas exposure from his time as, as a army soldier in World War I. So that was a way for me to, to transition into that. And I think that scene worked really well because I was also working with his younger self to tell the story. Mm. So I felt like I was, I was in 
in tra- like the whole time while I was working on this book, I felt like I was talking to Ramon at his, at the end of his life, but also to the paperwork and the and this, and the newsletters and the, and the newspaper articles. I felt like I was talking to him in my ha- in my head a lot. He was the character that was kind of guiding me through this whole process. Right. And and did did he react at all or say anything when you mentioned that you were writing a book? He was just kind of like very. He was a very stoic guy at the end of his life. He just mm. kind of was like, "All right, yeah." <laughs> like I don't know, I don't care. You know, it it, was, it wasn't like he didn't care or he was excited. He was just like giving me the information I needed to tell right. the story. And he was just very, very, very matter of fact. Yeah, matter of fact, and mm. he just and was very helpful. You know, what he wasn't trying to hide anything. Mm. At the end of the day, it was about the community at large, in addition to his life. Mm. What what are some moments that didn't didn't make it into the book necessarily if there were any that that you had really wanted to to tell but maybe didn't serve uh, the narrative uh so something that that nathan fox had mentioned in one of our previous interviews uh that you know sometimes in art nothing nothing is precious so sometimes you know you have to you have to leave something out in order to tell the story you want to so ramon was uh very instrumental in introducing jobs and work into the the community one of the most interesting things I found out was that Ramon worked with the, um, at the time, back then, there was a lot of um, television being shot at old Tucson Studios, which is this amusement park now where there was a High Chaparral was a show that they would film out in Tucson. So he was able to get Native Americans and Mexican migrants to, to play characters and background characters. In, in the show and I wanted to um, explore that and use that setting as a way to relay information but my editor was so confused like why are we why is Ramon dressed as a Native American right now what is what does this have to do with anything and I didn't have a good enough answer for that mm-hmm. okay well, because well, one of my favorite scenes is the uh, retail Brown's horse racing uh, setting and that was a way for me to relay information about the the, meet, the protest meeting that was going to happen and the town hall meeting for the um, for the Interstate 10 to be built. And it was it served as a way to show that both sides were running out of time and which horse was going to win. And wow. that was that was uh, that was exciting for me to be able to expose that kind of part of Tucson that not a lot of people know about when people think of Tucson they think of like the desert and and Day of the Dead and just like kind of you know the very Mexican typical um, uh, cultural things but there's also this like amazing horse race this horse racing track that people like to get dressed up and go to and I wanted to use that as a way to to paint the life that that Mo Udall had to had a play in kind of like every politician has to has to go from from the community centers all the way up into the high high ticket meet and greets and that was something i wanted to explore in this story yeah uh, very cool i mean uh, a lot of those moments uh you know re rethinking on that scene now that you mentioned the horses uh, a lot of that's you know in, in just in context helps elevate these things so uh absolutely really really cool moments um, one, one last question on, 
on how you sort of wrote this. Uh, in the back matter, you actually mentioned how it was difficult to to animate information. Um, you know, it, a lot of this is sort of historical fact. It's not necessarily outside of those more you know action sequences where people are protesting and, and things are happening. A lot of it's conversation. How did you how did you work with that? How, how, how did you I guess switch your mindset to try to tell a story using that that just information. Well, I'm lucky because I have been reading comics and learning on how to tell a compelling story with pictures and words, and that's what you have. You know, that's what you're working with. And I learned from my favorite cartoonist, David Lapham. He was kind enough years, years and years ago to to send me one of his Deadpool Marvel scripts and also explain to me that script and how he was how he avoided talking heads. Mm-hmm. And that's what I always try to do is avoid talking heads at all costs. And uh, just as an example of the scene where the community finds out about the proposed highway, my, I had talked to Rosie Jimenez, who was a surviving Mayo member. She had told me that her um, that my great grandfather used to throw these big parties that the community would come to. So I wanted him to be in his element and like throw a party and and soften that blow and have everybody having a good time and and distributing the newsletter that they self-published. So while he's talking about what's happening, you see like the word traveling fast. And it's the community that's that's spreading that word. I, I love the way that you use the community in in the book. Um, they, as much as you have your individual characters, the community always has its influence. It has its you know its needs, its wants. Um, can you speak more to how maybe the community helped influence this book outside of writing for the community? How did the it inform it, even in like smaller details? Yeah, I mean, there's a scene where we see Ramon uh, working with Mayo, then you see him work, then you see, uh, also something I found out while writing this book was my great-grandfather and my great-grandmother, Leonor, they owned and ran a candle-making business that was one of their first attempts at introducing jobs and and kind of doing on-site training, work training, and giving them a, a job experience so there was that scene where they're they're making candles and where he was teaching an adult services class. That was another thing I found out. What he he was the head of adults uh, education at the Ritchie Elementary School, the only school that was in the community. Being in the area, being living in Old Pasqua, growing up in Old Pasqua as a child, that was that was enough. Going to the potty sales and seeing that these people were able to continue their ancient Easter celebrations and were able to use the community center that they had self-built to distribute uh, food from the food bank. And just always being in that environment and knowing the strength and beauty that the community had to offer, but also learning so much more from my great-grandfather and his words that he had typed. Um, I just knew that that my great-grandfather was not the sole person that elevated this tribe. It was... It was the, the the spirit and the cause and the, the participation. Yeah, um, there's a 
there's a, a saying that my my dad always says, uh, "Manos a la obra." So like you know, like hands in the pot, man. Like we gotta gotta get stuff going, and 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 that definitely comes through. You know, as much as your father, uh, your grandfather was a uh, a vehicle for. Uh, I guess access and leverage and, and, and being able to do a force of change. The community was the one that, that received it, that, that provided that feedback. And um, that, that's a, that's a great thing to hear that, that it's so supportive and, and just alive. Yeah, no, um, you know, I, I like to say that, that I'm, uh, the Pasqua tribe is one of the last recognized tribes. It wasn't until early two thousands the tribe was able to gain federal recognition, but but I'm sure they would have gained their federal recognition without Ramon, because they're so mm. resilient. They're resilient people. Yeah. But I'm glad that Ramon and Maya were around to expedite that process for them. Shifting quickly to the art, uh, I wanted to really to talk about the uh, the style. What, what was that? Uh, obviously, this is uh, you had mentioned. You know, you had known. Uh, Jason for a couple of years and, and Matt had picked it out but like is this sort of indicative of anything is this emulate anything or or not emulate but rather uh, borrow the elements of from any anything native at least because it, it seems cartoonish but there's like an extra element in there that I, I've been trying to figure out yeah I mean I, I hate to speak for Gonzo and his, his art style but I'm just going to try to re- recollect what he's been saying in all our interviews, but La Voz de Mayo Tata Rambo is first and foremost a comic book. Mm. So he drew a comic book and he was very aware of the Pasquayaki's culture and tribe and color schemes, so he uses a lot of red that the Pasquayaki use. And uh, my only color note for the book was I want it to always look like a Tucson sunset to nail that, but also bring more more uh, gravitas to my script and my words and and he was able to create his own narrative and his own color scheme and he had autonomy autonomy to do that so um, he he had talked about um, drawing influence from propaganda uh, posters and and using the some Russian propaganda art as like ways to like kind of show to to structure some of the art style and i mean his it's his art style it's it he's on it is an unmistakable uh jay gonzo comic book and uh he he might have his uh what he what he has claimed is his influences but he is definitely in a league of his own yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I was I was blown away uh, the way that he he captures motion. But to, to what you were saying, you know, lo- it looks very much like the like propaganda posters. You know, the 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 classic had like a harsh shadow on one side, and all of it is as much as it captures that stoic feeling. It's still dynamic and, and fluid, and feels like it like it moves. Yeah. So Henry. Uh, I had an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for for joining. Um, uh, I don't want to take up any more of your time. I know you're still trying to head home, but uh, is there anything coming up? Is there anything that you want to plug? Anything? I know at the end of the book you give a little a little quick tease about your potential next upcoming project. Is there anything you can you can say about that? 
Uh, yeah, I'd love to do a story about Dolores Huerta. Definitely, I think she deserves her own graphic novel, like George, like George Takai, and uh, John Lewis. She's definitely someone that deserves a her own dedicated graphic novel. Um, I am currently just working on different my next move. Uh, I talked to Gonzo. At, um, we had a we had met at the book launch at Heidi Ho Comics, and uh, he's going to take the rest. Of, he's going to take a year to to do the high concept ideas. He's he's uh, kicking around for Lamano Destino now that he's done with the the single issues. He's ready to recollect it, and uh, I, and I told him I, I wanted to get out of his way because I know there's a lot he wants to do on his own, mm. but uh, we are planning on a, a second. Uh, book together uh, at least in 2021 uh, I'm working on a, a, some fantasy ideas, a superhero idea and a true crime idea that I really want to to tell I, I'm grateful that that I am that I am imaginative enough or at least I think I am to continue making comics so I'm not like struggling what's my next idea it's kind of like wh- what which next idea is it? You know, right? Uh, depending on when this this drops, um, I plan on being at Cala, the Comics Art uh, Los Angeles, the first weekend of uh, December. That will be my last, my seventeenth convention of the year. Woof! Whoa. <laughs> uh, so I'm really excited to end the year on a high note in my in my backyard. Um, wow. Yeah. No, I'm I'm excited. For that show, and uh, I'm hoping to go back to Tucson, my hometown, and and do a signing at Charlie's Comics. I promised him a signing, so just need to lock in that date and uh, yeah, just enjoy the rest of the year. Yes, exactly. Uh, especially with holidays coming up. Uh, and then, uh, where can people find you? Uh, can they reach out? Any social medias? Uh, I'm on Twitter at uh, Henry Brajas. Um, I'm I'm pretty personal and political there, so if you're looking for a more apolitical comics. Focus Twitter account. You can follow me at TopGowHB. Um, you can also find me on Facebook and Instagram. I also have a newsletter, uh, Lamano. Uh, excuse me, <laughs> La Voz de Mayo newsletter. Um, so yeah, no, thank you so much, uh, Marco, for having me on the show. It was a, a real pleasure talking to you, and and I'm excited for uh, your personal comics that, that you might want to share with us and. And uh, your your news and your personal life. It's uh, it sounds like you you're having a pretty good time yourself. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Henry. Uh, and guys, as always, you can follow us at the Comics Pals wherever your social media is sold. Uh, reach out to us, email, check out our YouTube, do all the things that we tell you to do, um, and definitely go pick up La Voz de Mario Tato Rambo. Uh, it is out. Uh, as we mentioned, it's going to be dropping. Uh, this episode will be dropping a week from then. Uh, it will have come out on bookstores yesterday. So go run, go grab a pick up a copy. It's a really great story and uh, a super important one um, from a, a creator who's on the rise. So thank you guys again and uh, have a good one.